Psalm 113. 113. Now this, uh, just to give you a little bit of context, what's going on here. This uh, psalm is what we call a halal. Uh, can everybody say halal? Yeah, you've got to get that Hebrew guttural sound going there. Halal. Yes, the halal. That's right, until your throat, you know, scraping at the back there. It's a, we'll talk about what that means in a minute. But uh, you remember when we did uh, Psalm 134 and we talked about the songs of ascents? And how that psalm is, uh, there's like a collection within a collection of the psalms. The songs of ascent are a little book within the psalms as a whole. It's the same thing here. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 are a mini collection within the book of Psalms. And this collection is called the Egyptian Hallel. Okay, we don't know that from the book of Psalms itself. This comes to us from Jewish tradition. But this collection of Psalms from the latter Old Testament time right through the New Testament and to this day among Jews is used at the festival of Passover. This is why it's called the Egyptian Hallel because they remember during this time the exodus from Egypt. And so two of these Psalms, 113 and 114, are sung before the Passover meal, and then the other four are recited after the Passover meal. So as a sidelight, it's very, very likely that Jesus himself, on the night he was betrayed, recited Psalm 113. That's not particularly relevant, but I just thought it was really cool to say. Uh, it's because this was the Passover meal, wasn't it, that he was sharing with his disciples. And this is what they would have done, as recited a couple of psalms before dinner. This would have been one of them. So as we use this psalm in our own praise, it's, I think, interesting to remember that Jesus himself used these words in his own worship of the Father. So back to this idea of a halal. Halal is a Hebrew word, and it is, in fact, the first word in this psalm. And it's used in most of these Psalms, 113 through 118. And it is translated in your English Bible simply as praise. That is what it means. And then the next word in Hebrew that you get to, in the first line of the Psalm, is the word Yahweh, which is the name that Jews used to describe God or the Lord, Yahweh. So, Halal Yahweh, literally, praise the Lord, except... In the book of Psalms, the writers are particularly creative, and they do this thing that you only find in the book of Psalms. They get these two words, Hallel, Yahweh, and they merge them together, and they create one word out of two. And they do this by shortening Yahweh to Yah, and lengthening Hallel to Hallelu, and you get Hallelujah. See, it's coming, the lights are coming on. See, this is where we get the English word hallelujah, because that is in fact the Hebrew word that stands behind this first line. It's one word translated into three words in English, praise the Lord. That's where it comes from. That's the idea of hallelujah, is to give praise to the Lord. I think, though, that this whole idea of praise, the real depth of hallel, often gets a bit lost in translation. Sometimes, I mean, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word praise, but to me it conjures up a lot of image of cutesy Christian songs. Cutesy kids, you know, let's just praise the Lord. Gives you a little fuzzy feeling, that kind of thing. Now, it's not that that's categorically wrong. Praise certainly is to do with singing and these sorts of things, but I think sometimes we've flattened it out and we've just limited it just to a couple of songs that make you feel really good. That's not the essence of Hallel. Hallel literally is an outburst. It means like a verbal outburst of declaring something extraordinary about God. 
It is a cry. It's a religious exclamation declaring one of the attributes of God. This is why the psalmist says in, the, in this opening verse, praise the name of the Lord. Literally, the name of the Lord means all of the attributes of the Lord, all of the qualities, all of the characteristics of Yahweh, the Lord, His wisdom, His sovereignty, His power, His strength, His might, His majesty, His love, His grace, His mercy, all of these things, and there are a million others. These are the things to which we ascribe praise to God, and this is why we praise Him. So the image is not simply of singing a song or two, it is of a multitude of voices declaring these various attributes that God has, exalting all of these things that are true and declaring God to be God. And there are a couple of things that characterize this particular picture of Hallel that the psalmist wants to paint for us. First of all, in verse 2, you see that this Hallel, this praise, is to be both now and forevermore. So it's not a one-off worship event. It's not just a Sunday service. This is a continuous chorus of praise that began at the dawn of creation and will continue on into eternity future, an unceasing, never-ending anthem of Hallel to God for all that He is and all that He does. See how the picture is broadening out beyond what we might think praise is today. Not only is this praise to be eternal, it's also universal. The psalmist says, it is from the rising of the sun to the place where it sits. For me, that is from Beach Haven to Teatitu. I think the vision is a bit broader than that. <clears throat> from the ends of the earth, from one end of creation to the other. This is the vision that is being captured. All of creation joining together in praise. And I don't think the psalmist is just talking about humans. I don't think it's just us that praise God. This is humans, animal, vegetable, mineral, the whole lot, every inanimate object. That might seem a bit strange that inanimate objects would praise God, but in fact, creation's already doing it. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day to day, they pour forth speech. Night to night, they reveal the knowledge of God. In their own way, perhaps not audibly, but certainly visibly, all of creation is already giving praise to God. It's already declaring His attributes, His, His creativity, His power, His sovereignty, His wisdom. You remember what Jesus said to the religious leaders? If these disciples don't cry out in praise to me, even these rocks will. They'll cry out in their place. Ron Canoli wrote a great worship song called Ain't Gonna Let No Rock Outpraise Me. Isn't that great? I'm not going to let any rock praise and sing in my place because they do already. Again, not audibly, but they declare the attributes of God. So this picture of halal, this idea of praise biblically, is the idea of you and I joining in the great anthem of praise that is eternal now and forevermore and is universal, participated by all of creation, extolling the virtues, the wonders of God. That is the vision the psalmist is holding before us. And then it's as if, for the rest of the psalm, he says, all right, now you've got the idea. You understand what Hallel is supposed to be. Now here are your song sheets. Here are the words that I want you to sing. And this is really what the rest of the psalm is, is simply an example 
of what we might praise God for. There's a million things that we could think of to attribute praise to about God. And these are just a few. And as you read the Psalms, more and more and more come to mind. But the psalmist here gives us this fantastic example of exactly what we might actually say to God in praise. This is the content of the rest of the psalm. So let's read it together. First, this section, this little section in verse 4 and 5, revolves around the idea of praising God, giving Him halal, for who he is in himself. The Lord is exalted over the nations. That in itself, by the way, is quite a unique claim at the time. We kind of gloss over it because we've heard these phrases. They just lull us to sleep now. But in the ancient Near East, this wasn't something that many people were saying at all. The Lord is exalted over the nations. See, there were many gods at the time, but no one was claiming that their god was the god of the nations. You have Baal, who's the god of the Canaanites, you have Dagon, the god of, the, of Philistia, and Shemosh, the god of Babylonia, all these different gods. But no one's saying these gods are the god of all the nations. That's just the god of my nation. And the real competition was when the battle lines are drawn, my god's bigger than your god, so we're going to whoop you. That's basically how it goes down. But, but that doesn't mean any of these nations were saying that their god had jurisdiction or authority over any other nation. Along comes Judaism and says, not only is Yahweh the God of the Jews, He is actually the God of all nations. He's not just our God. Yes, He is particularly the God of Israel, but He also claims authority over every nation, every people group on earth, and He summons every nation to allegiance, and He will one day judge every nation, and all nations one day will flock to Zion to learn Torah and worship Yahweh in His holiness. Can you see what a bolshie claim that would have been? In the ancient era, you see how this would have raised some eyebrows, how it probably would have made Israel a target in many ways because of this gutsy claim that our God actually has authority over you. And parenthetically, this is why Christians today ultimately cannot accept moral relativism. This is the foundation of it, because our God is the God of the nations. He is not simply the God of Christians. He is not just my God, and He's not just your God. So it's not ultimately acceptable for us to affirm that therefore others could just have their gods with authority over them. It comes back to this, that Yahweh claims allegiance over, over all nations. One day will hold all people groups to account and summons all nations to obedience to Him. He claims an authority over the nations that as yet they don't even recognize. But one day they will, when every tongue, every tribe, every nation bows the knee and confesses Jesus as Lord. <laughs> So that's the vision. The Lord is exalted over all nations. But there's more to it. The Lord is exalted over the nations, verse 4, His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? The one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. It's a great picture of God. It's um, easy to get caught up on this terminology of the Lord being above the, uh, the heavens, above the heavens and the earth. Heavens, by the way, here simply refers to the atmosphere. There's different types of heavens in the Bible. Think of this just as everything that's not the earth. The earth and then all, you know, the clouds, the sky, the universe, and so on. That is the heavens. When we say that God is above the heavens, or when the scriptures say that God is above the heavens, don't think of that in physical terms. It's not that if you just keep going up and up and up and up, eventually you get to God. When you think that through, clearly that's not the case. There's something else going on here. It's not physical proximity, it's a quality of being. It's that God is above the earth in the sense that he is qualitatively different to every other created being. And this is what we call God's transcendence. 
It's a big flash word, but it simply means God's otherness. He is completely other than everything else that you or I can think, say, imagine, talk about, see, touch, feel, all the rest of that. I think commonly we imagine this to be something like this. There is, a, there is a food chain in the universe. There is a hierarchy of beings that go from the lowly earthworm or something like that right up to the top of the pile and you'll have humans and then perhaps angels and then ultimately God, the supreme being over the universe. Now that sounds right and that sounds like what transcendence might mean. It sounds like what the psalmist might be saying here. But that, that, that is not entirely accurate. That would be claiming for God uh, preeminence. That would be making him supreme. That would be making him superior to everything else. But the Bible actually claims more for God than that. It claims his transcendence, which means that God is absolutely categorically different than everything else. He's not just at the top of the food chain. He's not just at the top of the pile. He is not on the pile. He is aside from it in a category and a league of his own. A.W. Tozer explains this well. He says that God is as high above an angel as he is high above a caterpillar. It's not that God is closer to an angel in likeness and less like a caterpillar. Even though an angel and a caterpillar are incredibly unlike in many ways, they are alike in the sense that they both fall into the same category of that which is not God. And the only other category that exists is God. And it is a category of one inhabited by God himself. He is absolutely other than everything else we know. This is why Paul says to Timothy, God alone is immortal. He dwells in unapproachable light whom no eye has seen or can see. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. We cannot approach God. We cannot see him or look upon his face. We see only shadows of his glimpses because he is unlike anything else that we know. The Genesis 1 and 2 is clear on this when it says that God created the heavens and the earth. Immediately that places God outside of all creation. So pantheism is excluded. This idea that every God is in the tree, he's in the chair, he's where everything contains a spark of the divine. That cannot be because God created it. He stands outside of it. This is the picture the psalmist is wanting to paint for us. God is utterly transcendent. Not just above everything, but above in the sense of being other than everything. So far in this psalm, the whole trajectory of what's being said is just upward, upward, upward. Above, above, above. God is higher. God is greater. He is exalted over everything that exists. And then you get to verse 6, and the whole direction of the psalm begins to change. As the psalmist says, pick it up from verse 5, Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? Suddenly the picture of this God is, is expanding, isn't it? This is not just a God who is transcendent. He maintains his transcendence. But now God is not simply one who remains indifferent to the world, who remains aloof from it and apart from it, but he stoops down figuratively again. Don't picture God literally stooping down to have a look on things. This is just an image. God uses this human language because this is what we can understand to explain things that are ultimately incomprehensible. God stooping down to look on what he has made. This is the idea of God's mercy. 
And in the context of this psalm, I can't think of a better definition of mercy than transcendence with a stoop in it. This is what God's mercy is. It's transcendence that stoops down to look on creation. And the idea of looking on creation is not just staring at it. It's taking an interest in us. It's actually having compassion on us. It's actually exhibiting concern for us. Try and fathom that, the God of the universe, the Most High, the Ancient of Days, actually caring about you. This is not Aristotle's God. This is not the, the unmoved mover, the God who feels nothing, never changes, never experiences emotion. This is a God who is moved by his creation. This is a God who is drawn to what he has made, who feels and who is pulled towards us because of his own self-giving nature to want to come down and look and enter into relationship even with us and not just with the finest and greatest of everything that he's made but with the lowliest and most humble of all. This is verse 7. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with the princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. These images are not just abstract ideas. They actually come out of a prayer that a woman prayed in the Bible. Earlier on in the biblical story, a woman named Hannah, who's the mother of the prophet Samuel. And she was married to this guy named Elkanah, who had two wives, and that's a whole separate issue, which we're not going there this morning. But she was one of the wives, and this lady, Paniah, was the other. Paniah bore a multitude of children to Elkanah, and Hannah was barren. She bore none. In and of itself, there's a huge social stigma that went with that in these days. Just the idea that to be barren, to be without children, is basically a divine curse, that somehow you've done something wrong, or God is, for some reason, against you. So she was already suffering this huge social shame, and then on top of that, Paniah made it her business to mock and taunt Hannah because of all the children Paniah had and the fact that Hannah wasn't having any. Hannah lived years in this depressive state, crying out to God for a child. And finally, God answered her prayer and gave her this boy, Samuel, who became great prophet of Israel. And Hannah, at that point, when her son was born, a few days later, she takes him to the temple to present him to God before the priests. And she prays this prayer of thanksgiving to God, which is recorded in the scriptures in 1 Samuel 2. Let me just read you an extract from it. You don't have to turn there. But see, as I read this, if you can hear echoes of Psalm 113 in here. These are Hannah's words. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with the princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. Can you hear that? You hear the parallels. The psalmist is going back to this prayer, and in this intriguing way, just the, the, the wonder of what happens with the this, with this biblical story, this prayer of Hannah's that comes out of real circumstances of a woman and her struggle, that song now becomes an allegory of Israel in Psalm 113. It now becomes Israel's story. You remember Psalm 113 is used at Passover, and what's everybody thinking about at Passover? The Exodus, the deliverance from Egypt. And so suddenly, instead of Hannah being the needy woman, Israel is this needy nation 
figuratively the needy and poor and barren woman who is delivered and who is raised up from the ash heap. The barren woman who is settled in her own home, just as Israel was settled in the promised land and God brought it out of a state of slavery into a land flowing with milk and honey. All that was true for Hannah is now projected onto Israel, the life and blessing that that nation enjoyed. It's Israel's song of praise, and Hannah's words become their words. And the wonder of the Scriptures is that as you and I now read this psalm, and as the biblical story moves forward, we can see an application here that even the psalmist in his own day couldn't see. And that is that Hannah's words not only become the story of Israel in Psalm 113, they ultimately become the story of the one true Israelite, Jesus of Nazareth. Let me read you another passage in the Scriptures. Again, don't turn there. Let me just read it to you in Philippians chapter 2 as Paul describes the journey of Jesus. And again, I want you to listen and see if you can hear any echoes of this downward, upward movement, God stooping down and raising up. This is the movement of God's mercy, the movement of His grace. Listen to what Paul says about Jesus, Philippians 2, 6. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's the same story. Jesus became the poor. He became the needy. He became the barren, in a sense, for us. And because of his sacrifice and his lowliness, God raised him up, exalted him, vindicated him, and gave him the name Lord, set him high above the nations, appointed him as heir of all things. Remember we read that in Hebrews chapter 1. Christ established as the one to whom all things would one day be subjected. So Jesus has become now the fulfillment of Hannah's prayer. And the final uh, phase in this whole circle is that you and I now come right back to Psalm 113, and we can see our own story in these verses because of Jesus. We can see now that you and I are the needy and the poor. You and I are the ones who were spiritually bankrupt. Perhaps not financially, but in terms of relationship with God, we had nothing to bring. We have nothing to our own credit. Even the good moral things that we think we've done in our lives are filthy rags before God. We've got no brownie points to our name, nothing to bring at all that's of any use to Him. We are the poor. We are the needy. And God has lifted us up. He's given us a new position. We are, in a sense, the barren woman who has no hope and no future on our own. Nothing to look forward to. And God has settled us in our own home. He's given us a new home in the kingdom of heaven. He's taken us out of the kingdom of darkness, placed us in the kingdom of light. He's given us a new position of honor in the family of God. And he's given us the right to address him as children. Given us the right to address the transcendent one, the most high, the living God, as Abba, Father. This term of endearment to a parent that God would give us the unspeakable privilege of coming before Him with such intimacy and such 
closeness is testimony to how much Christ has accomplished on the cross and how much God has raised us up from the ash heap, from the pit, from the dust and the mire, and given us a place of honour at his right hand, that one day we would reign with Christ over all things. That is the progression of mercy, that God reaches down to the lowest and neediest, even to the level of our own spiritual poverty, and raises us up. We haven't earned it. We don't deserve it. We've done nothing to merit it. But God, out of the sheer extravagance of his love, has done this on our behalf. On the cross, he won a decisive victory over the power of sin and death and lavishes that victory on us. We are the recipients of all that Christ earned. In view of all that, how can we not say hallelujah? Eh? How can we not praise the Lord? As one hymn writer put it, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah. What a Saviour. The great hymn, and just great words that reflect the same spirit as Psalm 113. These are the things, these are the thoughts that stir us to do what it is the psalmist hoped that we'd do as we read this, and generations of Christians have done before us, that we'd be moved to say, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, praise be to God, my Saviour. A couple of years ago, when Anna and I were in the States, yeah, one Christmas that we were there, Anna's family flew out from New Zealand to meet us, and her grandparents flew out from London, the other way, and we all met in New York and had Christmas together. Fantastic time there. And one of the highlights of that trip is that we took, a couple of days before Christmas, took a trip to Carnegie Hall, the great concert hall in New York, and were privileged to see a recital of Handel's Messiah in Carnegie Hall. Just a majestic piece of music, this choral arrangement. It's pretty long, I have to tell you. I mean, I thought I was pretty cultured, but I realized, you know, after sort of, because the hallelujah chorus is sort of two-thirds of the way through this thing, you know, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and it's wonderful music, but, you know, by the time the hallelujah chorus comes around, it really is hallelujah. <laughs> it's the chorus, you know. Uh, we finally got there, and customarily, you know, we, uh, the tradition is everyone stands, and just this booming wall of sound, singing hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns, just sends a shiver down your spine. And I thought, you know, do these people know what it is they're singing? Do they realize the significance and the relevance of these words? Do they realize those words are actually taken from the scriptures themselves? They come out of a great chorus that's mentioned for us. One final passage I want to read as we close this morning from the book of Revelation, right at the end of the biblical story. This incredible picture of Hallel that finally comes at the end of history. Let me just read a couple of verses. Then I heard, this is Revelation 19, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. This, friends, is the fulfillment of everything the psalmist hoped and longed for. 
It's the fulfillment of the vision that he held out in Psalm 113, that one day Hallel would be eternal and one day Hallel would be universal. Here it is in Revelation 19. Finally, all of creation bowing the knee before God. Finally, this incredible and majestic anthem of praise joined in by every living and non-living being ascribing to the Lord the greatness due his name. It's a majestic picture, and it really is one that's worth keeping in front of us as we anticipate that day. That vision of what worship one day will be is the goal of everything that we work towards in this life. It's the goal of Christian mission that would bring people to a point of worshipping the one God of the nations. It's the goal of discipleship that we would praise God and give him glory as he desires to be glorified in spirit and in truth. It's the goal that all history is moving towards. And it's worth taking this time to ponder the transcendence of God, his otherness, to ponder the mercy of God, his stoopingness, the transcendence that stoops down to lift us up, that as these thoughts become internalized in our lives, our hearts would be stirred to say with the psalmist, Hallelujah, who is like our God?